Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. Uh, welcome to this new chapter on the anecdote called Masters of Money, um, where we look to explain in digestible fashion the core economic schools of thought that drive monetary and fiscal policy making today, and also the philosophy of their founders. Uh, I wish to say that economics is not a monolith. Uh, over history, many have disagreed on how to organize capital, even within the framework of certain principles that have actually been agreed upon um, between famous economists. So this series tries to explain exactly what drives these disagreements, or at least these philosophical disagreements. Uh, in this episode, um, I wanted to speak about the classical school of thought and its founder, Adam Smith. But actually, to understand Smith and to understand classical political economy, one has to really understand first the environment it was born in. Uh, as we're going to see with each of these schools of thought, the events that surrounded their foundation at the time heavily influenced their philosophy. Uh, the classical school of thought uh, is no exception, of course. Um, it was born during a time in which the Industrial Revolution, which was, of course, the Anglo-American transition to manufacturing away from agriculture in the 18th and 19th century, um, you know, was radically altering the fabric of society and the economy at large. And, of course, we know that the Industrial Revolution involved uh, mass changes in the modes of production, uh, where basically societies went from hand to machine, we know it involved the use of steam and water power, mass mechanization, the introduction of the textile and iron industries. Um, we know that, of course, the effects of the Industrial Revolution were, you know, extensive. And this itself was a reaction to what preceded it. And, you know, we know that the uh, era before the Industrial Revolution was characterized by the separation of church, or more formally, the ecclesiastical hierarchy from the state during the renaissance which marked the transition from middle ages to modernity now we're not going to delve too much into either the renaissance or the industrial revolution um one could argue their podcasts in their own right but suffice to say this period of immense growth and capital inevitably gave rise to a school of thought that championed certain ideas within the wider framework of modern capitalism now what were those ideas you might ask in the era of the Industrial Revolution, growth became the modus operandi for success. So too did it become the focus of classicalism or the classical school of thought. Consistent with the separation of church from state under the guise of cognitive freedom, the classical doctrine is characterized by the philosophy of laissez-faire and free competition. It was essentially a protest against the clutches of the church that hindered economic progress and suppressed economic growth. Uh, enter Adam Smith, the supposed father of economics. He was born in 1723 and raised in Scotland. He read moral philosophy at the very young age of 14 at the University of Glasgow before moving to Oxford to undertake postgraduate studies in 1740. Uh, he became uh, a lecturer at the University of Edinburgh in 1748. Two years afterwards, he actually met with David Hume, uh, the famous Scottish empiricist, and actually formed a tight connection with him relative to other figures of the then Scottish Enlightenment. Uh, Smith became a professor at Glasgow and remained there for around a decade before publishing The Theory of Moral Sentiments, one of his major works. Adam Smith pivoted towards actually uh, discussing economics and economics as a subject soon after this 
And we know, of course, that The Wealth of Nations was published in 1776. And it was instantly successful. I mean, it sold out in the first few months. And a lot of the fundamental concepts in classicalism are actually derived from The Wealth of Nations um, and the work of Adam Smith himself. We know that prior to classical political economy, mercantilist theory dominated Britain. Uh, these were a set of ideas that promoted trade as the primary means of generating wealth uh, by way of policies like protectionism. We know that in The Wealth of Nations, Smith rejected this archaic philosophy of the past and argued that free competition and free trade was really the only route to prosperity. That governments ought not to stifle the free market mechanisms which yield optimal equilibria, that each actor concerned with their own self-interests benefits wider society by actually producing goods others are willing to buy. And that the apparent chaos of competition leads to actually an orderly system that allocates resources efficiently. But the invisible hands of the market wasn't the only thing he contributed. Uh, Smith actually initialized key discussions in the theory of distribution and even the theory of value. Um, on the latter, in the never-changing industrial world, he argued that the price of commodities actually reflected the labor expended to purchase it. And this was a radical idea, and he wasn't alone, actually, in presenting these concepts. We know that soon David Ricardo, whose surname almost always follows Smith, would actually expand on these ideas in the principles of political economy and taxation, which he wrote in 1817. He emphasized, once again, that the value of goods produced and sold in a competitive market are often promote, uh, sorry, proportional to the labor costs involved in producing them. These ideas, the ideas of Adam Smith and David Ricardo, uh, took center stage in classical political economy, uh, as did the, you know, the theories of distribution, which basically split national product into profits derived from factors of production. So, for instance, wages from labor, profit for cap from capital, and rents from landlords. Ricardo was also known for his quite famous theory, the theory of comparative advantage. And this argued that every nation ought to specialize in what they are, they, are, they are skilled at and import the rest to maximize the division of labor internationally and thus total world output. He too was not alone. And actually, most of the ideas in Smith and Ricardo were even restated by John Stuart Mill, whose name, once again, also follows both Ricardo and Smith in the principles of political economy, which he wrote in 1848. And this was really the culmination of the classical doctrine, when basically John Stuart Mill related these abstract principles written by his predecessors to reality in real-world scenarios. Uh, and it was under the classical doctrine that economics actually became a so-called social science. And with the work of these giants um, in economic philosophy, uh, you know, many would actually go on to develop the subject in great detail. They wrote on theories of value, price, uh, theories of supply and demand, and distribution. And so the time of top-down command and control monarchies was actually over. Their mercantilism and protectionist policies were relegated to history, and Europe entered a new age of secular, liberal, democratic capitalism. So just to reiterate, the key thinkers of the classical doctrine were Adam Smith, he lived, of course, between 1723 to 1790, the so-called father of capitalism, he wrote The Wealth of Nations in 1776, 
and ushered in key ideas such as the invisible hand, the division of labor, specialization, labor theory of value, and uh, a lot more. And we've already spoken about him in this episode. Um, we move, of course, to Thomas Malthus. He lived after Smith, in, or at least he outlived him, um, between 1766 and 1834. And he was ma- most famous for an essay on the principles of population, which he wrote in 1798. And, of course, the Malthusian trap or spectre, which arose from it, in which human population growth was at the expense of a higher standard of living, potentially even a lower standard of living. Um which is one of the reasons why economics is actually known as the dismal science because of you know what Malthus implied in terms of his policies to fix that, which involved of course famine and death and so on. He also wrote on rent and development and other topics too. Uh, the classical school owes itself to John Baptiste Say as well, the liberal French economist who lived between 1767 and 1832. Um, he developed ideas of competition, free trade and He's most probably famous for for Say's law, um, which of course we spoke about earlier, that supply constitutes its own demand, uh, or more reductively actually, um, and perhaps more in accordance with what Keynes uh, saw in Say, was that supply creates its own demand. David Ricardo, um, he wrote on the value and uh, theory of labor, and his most famous contribution as I mentioned, was perhaps comparative advantage. He's also well known for the Ricardian equivalence, which is the idea that uh, individuals, households can foresee or are long-sighted enough uh, that at the first sign of a tax cut uh, will not radically alter uh, their lifetime consumption uh, simply because they basically expect governments to raise taxes in the future to recuperate their losses um, and he con- contributed massively to the resistance against protectionism and campaigned for free trade and he lived between 1772 and 1823 and finally i would say that the major last let's say classical economist john stuart mill he lived between 1806 and 1873 and um, you know he inherited the ideas of Uh, utilitarianism from his predecessor Jeremy Bentham and he actually eased this into his economic philosophy and championed uh, ideas of the free market in a somewhat one could argue pragmatic fashion. Uh, In Principles of Political Economy he wrote on the ideas of course production and wealth and its distribution and also talked about many more ideas. Each of these individuals uh, could uh, basically be discussed in a podcast in isolation Uh, But I wanted to just prove that the classical school of thought is the culmination of work from each of these economists in the late 18th and early to mid 19th century, who were against the feudal mercantilist and protectionist state. They collectively produced a theory of the market that argued it ought to be a self-regulating system governed by the natural interaction of buyers and sellers. Most of them were however quite pragmatic liberals. Uh, What I mean by this is that whilst they believed governments ought to play a minimal role within the state, they they weren't anarchists. Instead, they saw a role of the state, albeit within certain confines. Their ideas, and of course, therefore the classical school of thought, suggested 
that value also was derived primarily from labor and that gains were to be found in the division of labor and ideas like comparative advantage, free trade and so on and so forth were central to their uh, viewpoint. So we now know, I guess, the height of classical economics. But what about its decline? Well, the classical school of thought is actually quite unique in this regard, in my view. Um, although the purity of these ideas have certainly declined due to the popularity of alternative approaches, um, because they are a founding school whose ideas were wide, uh, were, were, were wide-ranging and so intimately linked to the capitalist structure, um, being a founding school, of course, it seems that they found their way into most schools of thought and certainly, I would argue, modern society. But classical economics as a coherent school of thought did indeed decline in popularity and this was, of course, following the Great Depression that plunged the world into economic chaos after the First World War. Classical theory it could not account for these persistent declines in economic activity. It desperately held on, clinged to the idea that markets would care for themselves with minimal intervention. Enter John Maynard Keynes, who we will speak about in the next verse, of course, of this chapter, who ultimately proved that the classical way of thought uh, was unable to deal with the inherent and intrinsic booms and busts of the capitalist system, something that was, of course, also pointed out by Karl Marx, although both are incredibly different in their epistemology. So, with that being said about the classical school of thought, and so long as we understand, of course, that this was a key uh, idea which basically gave rise to the concept of capitalism, it's important, I think, as Muslims to try and understand how we approach this matter and also what the Islamic perspective is on it. And it's really important to know, and I would argue, that the classical school of thought or classical political economy not only represents a particular approach to capitalism, but also, we must remember, it is one of its founding fathers. This means, in my particular view, that there are some ideas that have persisted to this date and others that have not. And my argument is those that haven't survived are mainly due to the contradictions that arose as time elapsed within this system. And as we will go on to see in the following you know, verses of this chapter, uh, financial crises, uh, instability, uh, monetary instability for that matter, and other issues within the capitalist structure cause many of these classical ideas to falter and opens a vacuum for other economists to fill. But on those ideas that have persisted and are in fact, I would argue, woven into the fabric of the ideology that is capitalism, the classical school errs greatly and Islam does indeed offer a radically different alternative. Um, take, for instance, the classical primacy of growth that still prevails today. And we know that this is born out of an extremely flawed view of what the economic problem is. You know, capitalist you know, they were right to suggest that there is an economic problem. Uh, the classical economists, um, like, for instance, Adam Smith, David Ricardo, John Stuart Mill, did recognize this. 
but they failed miserably in their attempt to define what that economic problem is uh, correctly. Um, they formulated their view, and the classicalists are guilty of this, by chaining the concept of an infinite demand without properly understanding what demand is as being primarily composed of needs and wants, but instead amalgamating the concept to the idea that there are limited means to satisfy it. And based on this erroneous misconception, the classical school of thought and its proponents were convinced that greater production leads or satisfies a greater demand. But that can never really be quenched entirely simply due to the fact that that demand is indeed infinite by nature. And in reality, we know that there is an important difference between ma what man requires, i.e. his needs, and what he desires, i.e. his wants. And in addition to this, you know, there are other aspects to the classical doctrine which are problematic. For instance, assuming that the economic problem is concerning one of growth, improving productive capacity doesn't necessarily enhance distribution, ipso facto. This is the vital difference, I would argue, between science, of course, and the system of distribution. Um, this is a distinction capitalists have not made. And this arises as a result of misunderstanding the nature of the human condition, misunderstanding and misdefining, really, uh, the concept of demand, and then, of course, building policies off of that philosophical error. Now, we know that the uh, Islamic system understood demand to be finite, right? And that there's a sufficient amount of resources to actually quench this limited demand. Why? Because, of course, uh, demand in the Islamic economic system is categorized, let's say, between wants and needs. We know, of course, wants are somewhat infinite, but when it comes to needs, they are fairly basic and they are quantifiable. And therefore, when you evaluate the resources in the world today, and the number of people that exist within it, we know that Allah Azza wa Jal has provided an abundance of resources uh, to satisfy the needs, the basic needs and necessities of every citizen, which is what the Islamic economic system is predicated upon. Um, it doesn't, of course, intervene in those matters related to economic science, and this is something that we can certainly learn from other schools of thought, and we know that the Islamic economic uh, economic system is as a result very flexible in adopting new and innovative styles and means of productions with the objective essentially of enhancing you know uh, gdp or growth and we know that contrary to popular belief the islamic economic system encourages this entirely okay however it does place a priority which is all but absent within the classical doctrine of wealth filtration wealth distribution um, and wealth equity, um, rather than, of course, placing the priority on GDP growth-based uh, metrics, which has taken precedence in modern capitalist societies. Another aspect we might wish to discuss in comparing the Islamic economic system to the classical approach to capitalist ideology is uh, the idea of an entirely deregulated free market, I mean, ultimate economic freedom and autonomy are actually very dangerous concepts as they act as an incentive for men, uh, feeble men, to peddle their egocentric interests. And we know that predicated within the idea of freedom, i.e. democratic capitalism, let's say secular liberal 
democratic capitalism uh, is a precursor to chaos and inefficiency rather than structure and success. We know that autonomy in its pure sense is actually quite impossible to achieve uh, as there will always be some limitations placed upon humans by the state to prevent them from wreaking havoc on others. And we need to note here that man by his nature is avaricious and is influenced by the environment in which he operates. And therefore, the classical doctrine and the capitalist uh, ideology really has failed to understand that with full autonomy, uh, completely free agents are going to plunge the economy into anarchy, whilst markets left to regulate themselves create deficiencies in the allocation, allocative distributive system. And so we know that freedom of ownership and the concepts that arise from this, con this, this idea of, of liberty um, is not only flawed, but unsustainable. And it's this concept uh, of liberalism that is the source of many issues within capitalist free market systems, um, not only during the time of the classical school of thought, but also now in modern capitalist societies. You know, in Islam, in Islam, and we know in response to this, the Islamic economic system uh, prioritizes this idea of wealth fluidity, and it's also directly related to how men fulfill their demand. We know that Islam stipulates laws and rules, which flies in the face of classical doctrine concerning ownership and you know possession, and it understood that humans have a very natural propensity to generate wealth. But the problems arise really in handling it, in disposing of it, in acquiring it. So the objective of the Islamic economic system is not to stifle the natural propensity to generate wealth, but to guide and facilitate the distribution of capital, which is where, of course, classical capitalism fails miserably by way of organizing the methods by which man comes to own, dispose and, of course, um, maintain uh, capital. So we know that the Islamic economic system focuses on these aspects and where the free market might champion concepts like private ownership, uh, Islam actually regulated the private sector, right? Um, it made sure that each sector was well uh, fashioned by the rules and laws uh, revealed to us by Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Stamped uh, with approval, of course, uh, by the almighty Allah Azza wa Jal. We know that um, these are only some of the many ways in which Islam offers a totally different framework of economic philosophy to that of the classical economists. And as we proceed through these schools of thought, we will actually be painting a more vivid image of the Islamic economic system and the ideology it is derived from. Uh, there are, however, I would argue, a lot of scientific issues here promoted by the classical school that we cannot deny. And it's here where I, I, I wish to really emphasize that there are aspects to economics which are entirely descriptive, and then there are aspects to economics which are quite prescriptive. When it comes to the descriptive contributions of the classical school of thought, they are, in fact, quite profound. So ideas, for instance, of comparative advantage, ideas regarding the pricing mechanisms and its functioning, uh, the ideas concerning specialization and the division of labor, concepts on competition and welfare analysis, even ideas concerning the 
stimulation of growth and so on and so forth these i would argue are placed well into the realm of the descriptive uh, the positive as it were if i'm speaking from a political perspective and of course ideas concerning how these uh, this wealth is distributed and prescriptive policies on how the market ought to be fall well within the realm of the prescriptive and the normative i should say if i'm following that terminology so that was the classical school of thought and a focus on the master of money so-called master of money adam smith in the next verse of this chapter uh, we are going to be looking at the well-known john maynard keynes and his ardent followers the keynesians and showing basically in the next verse how classicalism essentially fizzled out and died at the hands of john maynard keynes who himself faced problems uh, in his economic epistemology and philosophy which ultimately led to the demise of that school of thought as well and in the following verses we are going to be basically venturing through other economic and core economic schools of thought so i hope you enjoyed this particular anecdote um, I look forward, of course, to speaking to you next week. Um, I would ask that you follow us on Spotify and you subscribe to our Facebook and uh, our Twitter and Instagram handles at The Anecdotic. Uh, but until next time, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.